Welcome to Books and Rhymes, the podcast that flips the script with a musical twist on your favourite books. I invite guests to pair a book with a song or an album that sparked the same emotional connection. In the concluding part of our conversation on his memoir, Lives of Great Men, Chike Frankie Adozian provide greater depth into his career as a journalist in the United States of America. We discuss his experience as one of few African journalists covering the highly publicised case of Amadou Diallo. You can listen to a playlist of the songs referenced in this episode by clicking the link in the show note. Subscribe to Books and Rhymes, the podcast on iTunes and your favourite podcast platforms. Get in touch by emailing booksandrhymes at gmail.com. Subscribe to the mailing list at booksandrhymes.com. Which song or album captures your perception of journalism? In terms of storytelling and um, in terms of maybe just thinking about how do you tell other people's story? How do you shine a light on someone that's not yourself? and sort of either raise them up or bring them down or whatever, I would say Fela's Lady. She go say him equal to man She go say him get power like man She go say anything man do himself he do I never tell you finish 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 I never tell you She go one taxi because it talks about equality of the sexes, the perceived inequality of the sexes, the idea that women are asking for a seat at the table. And it's a funny song, and it's like, oh, you know, come for dance, you go dance, <laughs> lady, lady dance. dance. You know, <laughs> you woman go dance, go <laughs> dance, dance, fire dance. dance. <laughs> you know, so, but when you, if you examine the lyrics quite deeply, like Fela is talking about women who are standing up and saying... We want a bit of a change. You know, you can make fun of them and you can call them lady, <laughs> you know. Or you can look at the fact that they're saying that what has happened up till now is not good enough, you know. And whether you agree with them or you don't agree with them, he put a spotlight on those kinds of women who were perhaps feminists before the term was, um, uh, what would you say, was de rigueur, you know. Before then, he put a spotlight on these women who were demanding by the way they lived their lives, not by, you know, carrying placards or, you know, by the way they lived their lives. They lived the demands for equality. Yeah, equality, dignity, you know, just understanding that people are different, Mm -hmm. you know? If you Mm -hmm. choose to, you know, kneel down for your husband, that's great. But if you choose to not dance fire dance, that's great too, you know? I anytime <laughs> you're laughing because you can see the wheels turning in my head. Anytime someone references Fellas Liddy, because I know that song. I grew up <laughs> I grew up with that song. In fact I danced to the song. The it's time. like it's like rap. How there are certain rap songs that you're just bopping to when it comes and it's just like, and then you, you hear the lyrics, you're like, actually, hold on a minute. Hold on, man, what's he saying? lyrics are suspect. Oh. It seemed like he's making fun of these chicks, but he's giving you all of their points of view. At a time when women who were somewhat different uh, were not ex- necessarily exalted or praised. And I think that that's what we do in journalism. We see things that people don't want to see and we highlight them. We see things that people would rather ignore. And we highlight them. I did not expect to come across Amadou Diallo <laughs> in Lives of Great Men. Amadou Diallo has a, a, a huge place in my in my world. And I think for me, even without 
understanding the terminology. For me, that um, narrative was me beginning to fight against erasure. Mm. You know, and for those who do not know, Amadou Diallo was a, a young man from Guinea. He had moved to America, and he, um, as most immigrants do, when you first move to a new country, you do all kinds of odd jobs. So at the time that he was killed, he had been one of those people who were selling um, paraphernalia on 14th Street, hats, mm. gloves, yeah. scarves, the like, while he was preparing to go to school. And they were he was shot and killed. He was shot at 41 times right. by plain clothes, New York City police detectives. So you look at the specter of this. In the middle of the night, some four white men approach you on your doorstep and ask you for ID, and f there is a ring of gunfire. Put yourself in his position. He has no way of knowing who these people are mm -hmm. because their car doesn't say police. It's just the car. There are people who are not in uniform. And they are, I would assume, quite intimidating. Now, these people were police officers, detectives from something that has been disbanded. But at the time, it was called the Street Crimes Unit. It was an elite unit. And they were looking for a rapist. They were on the prowl for a rapist. You know. Now, this is a thing where it often happens with um, people who are black men, where we're just scary to people, just by our very nature were scary and I've never quite understood it's it. It's just that perception. But it's just, the yeah. Way, yeah. yeah. Sometimes the way white people find white it scary. Yeah. And so these are four men. They're armed, heavily armed, and they're looking for a rapist and they see uh, this skinny black man on his doorstep who was Amadou. Amadou had come home from work and was out on his stoop getting some fresh air. Maybe he wasn't sleepy. He was a devout Muslim. He didn't drink. He didn't smoke from all of the knowledge that we had, he was a very loving brother. We believe that he was asked for identification. Mm -hmm. We believe that he put his hand in his pocket and brought out his wallet. We believed in the middle of the night there was um, a mistake that they thought as he brought out his wallet that he was bringing out a firearm. It's the same story that we yes. hear all the time. We believe a shot was fired and because he was at the top of the stoop and you know, all four men were walking in, so some people were higher. We believe that somebody shot, and one of the officers fell back on the stairs, and the other officers believed that Amadou had shot him, and they all opened fire. And so 41 shots later, you have the dead African and four white men, and they are the only ones who are armed. 41 shots, people. 41 shots. He was struck 27 times. One body, 27 times. And you can imagine 41 shots. There were other people in the house. It mm. almost feels like a miracle a that nobody zone. else was was, yeah. was struck, not even killed, but that nobody else had a gun, a bullet in yes. them because this was in the door of a house in the middle of the night. Mm. And so you have these four men. They've killed someone. They now realize it's a case of mistaken identity because the guy was bringing out his wallet and he only had a wallet with his photo ID in it and not a firearm, and that all the bullets that have fired have come in one direction. Okay, understand this. Then you now have the aftermath of that and the public rage 
And what I was seeing as a young journalist at the time, there was many things that happened. I was feeling like this could easily have been me because we had parallel lives. We both came from West Africa. We both um, were in this situation where we came on our own. Amadou's mother and father were fairly upper middle class. And when I went to his um, his mother's home in Conakry and in his village where he's actually from, there's a place called Holandi Boodle. Everybody in Guinea knew who his parents were. So this was a person who was very well known and left to come to America like everybody else to follow their dreams and not be under the specter of mom and dad, you know? So if I felt like I came to America and I'm an anonymous and nobody can say, I know your parents, what are you doing? I understood his journey of saying, let me come to America to a place where nobody knows me and I'm going to make it on my own. Not mommy and daddy send me money. I'm going to sell things on the street. I'm going to enroll in computer school at night and make it on my own. So I saw a lot of parallels in our lives and in the lives of an immigrant. But at the same time, I started to see the New York Police Department PR arm start to erase him and start to frame him as this street peddler, they would call him. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Um, this person who lied on his visa application. So even before we had figured out what had happened to him, there was already this othering. You know, it was like, okay, the guy's dead, and we don't know who he is, but here's what we know. He's probably nefarious because he's selling things on the street and he lied in his visa application and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And I took it upon myself to say that when I would write stories or contribute to stories about him, I would not refer to him the way the police was referring to him. I would not swallow their arguments hook, line, and sinker, you know, about this person. And I remember my editor at the time... Um, just letting me just do what I do, giving me free reign to tell the story. And I was able to connect with his family, connect with his parents, and give New Yorkers a different view, particularly when I went to his hometown. It's like talking, it's like everybody knows him. They said he didn't speak English. This man spoke at least four languages that we know of. You know, he spoke Wolof, he spoke English, he spoke French. And um, he had gone to school in Thailand, so he spoke Thai. So this was not somebody that you would say he did not understand what they were telling him, which was another narrative they were putting out there. This is quite similar to the narrative that was painted about Iman 
the supermodel whose father was a diplomat. Yes, of course. And she was marketed. No, but somebody as, found her in a bush somewhere. Yes, you know, <laughs> and that erasure, which yeah. you know, of the African yeah. intellectual and the yeah, African. I think Iman said, "I wasn't found in the bush. I was found in the University of Nairobi or something." You know, <laughs> can you imagine? You know, but it was easier to say, "Oh yeah, we found her in the bush somewhere." Mm, to feed into this Western imagination yeah. of what the African is or looks like. Yeah. So that particular, just living through that mess in New York, and really feel like. It was my responsibility to always push back on the narrative that he didn't speak English, he was just a street peddler, he didn't know, you know, just push back against that and show his family in the light and in the way that they deserve to be portrayed as educated middle class people. And as he was just like any other person that I knew. Because when I went to America to go to school, there were a few people that did the same from my generation. And not all of them were sent by their parents. Some people came like me to do it on their own, you know. And, you know, I've often talked about when I first left Nigeria, one of the things that I did was that I came to London and I didn't have papers. I didn't have national insurance. And I got a job at this bakery on Wilson High Road. And every day I would go to work, I would sweep, I would clean up, we would have a break. They gave me a few pounds and they gave me lots of pastries. But it was a job and I needed the money. But yes, technically I was, I guess, doing something illegal because I didn't have work permit. But many of us who are immigrants at different stages in our lives, we do a lot of different things and it does not make us, I would never accept the fact that somebody would say that I was a criminal because for a summer, I worked in the UK sweeping floors, cleaning toilets, and I didn't have the right paper to do it until I realized that I needed to go to America from here. You know, and I felt like Amadou's life was something similar. He got to New York, he needed to survive. And sometimes your survival means you sell things on the street while you're waiting for your official paper to come before you can now go and get a job in the supermarket or wherever, paying taxes or whatever. That does not make us criminals. That does not mean that we are bad people. It means that while we are in process, of getting our papers. Because I remember when I worked here in London and you had to go to the home office in Croydon, right? And fill out these forms and whatever. And maybe you would get it and maybe you wouldn't get it. But while you are in limbo, what do you do? You can't just be living in somebody's house doing nothing. And they are paying for everything. So you get up and you go and you do something. And for me, that was finding a job at a place where they said, help wanted. We're going to pay you in cash. Sweep the floors. And that's what I did. Now, eventually, I didn't stay long enough to see the process with the home office through because I decided that let me make my way to America because it'd be easier for me to get into school there and blah, 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 blah. But I recognized what Amadou was doing. He had told his mother and even called her when he got admitted into computer school. This was what I'm going to do. You don't need to send me money. I'll find my own way. And while he was in between all of these school registration and and uh, uh, not green card, but uh, student ability to walk right over board and all of that stuff, he sold things on the street. Now, that did not make him a criminal, but in the eyes of the NYPD PR department at that time, he was just a peddler and he was just, you know, probably nefarious, not necessarily a good person. And that I could see that infiltrating the way New Yorkers saw him in the news. And I wanted to change that. And that case, and subsequent to that, got me thinking about how are we as Africans represented in media when nobody who 
not just looks like us, but understands us, is able to give our side of the story. And that pushed my career in a whole different direction. That's why I started a lot of my focus being on Africa, because I've seen not just erasure, but just the painting of us in a way that's not complete. And that really bothered me. Which song would you say perfectly captures the the Amadou Diallo season and and the feelings and the emotions and the thought processes that you had? You can pick more than one song yeah. and give you reasons why. Yeah. Um, so the first song I will say, there was a song by Wycliffe called 41 Chance. Follow me on the borderline Who'll be the next to fire 41 shots by the yellow side You said he reads, sir But he didn't have no peace, sir But now he rests in peace, sir of the peace, you guys are vampires in the middle of the night. It may have been a year or two after um, the shooting that he released that because it wasn't just the shooting, it was the aftermath of it. The, 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 the demonstrations at New York City Hall, the arrest by prominent um, African-American people who had, had, they had just become really fed up with this. You know, the, the idea that there was a trial that was scheduled and a judge agreed with the defendants that the area was too polarized so they were going to take the criminal case hundreds of miles away to Albany, New York, far away from the Bronx, where the jury pool would be completely different and they didn't understand or maybe didn't have the lives of, you know, the people in the Bronx and their interaction with the NYPD. So that was a win for them. And of course, when we went to Albany and the criminal trial was done, it was so disappointing that the four officers got off criminally not even a charge of reckless endangerment stuck. And so they had gotten um, what they wanted by changing the venue to a, an area where the jury pool was not from New York City and didn't understand fully the interactions that Bronxites or Bronx residents or New York City residents of color had with um, their police. So as all this was happening and many things were coming out, there was the song by Wyclef. But one of the, the songs that I um, like to <laughs> think about that sort of like helps me through that confusion is uh, it's a song from, I think it's the 1980s. I don't exactly know when the song was released, but it was definitely the 80s. It's by Onyeka Wayne, and it's called Ape. <laughs> It's a song in Igbo, and um, you know, it, it just talks about many different things. But there's a certain sort of like, there's an anger, there's a there's a jealousy, you know. This, you know, they call it Iwe or so this jealousy that people have of what you have, and 
how you sometimes you're just trying to make it through and you look to the left and you look to the right and there's all these spirits and all these things coming your way and you just have to forge your head. So those two songs, 41 Shots by Wyclef and Ikwe by Oye Kawin. I think the Wyclef Jones song is actually named after the, um, Amadou Diallo. It's called Diallo. Really? Yeah, mm. I think. Mm. There's, you know, people have written about that, but that was, it, it was, um, hmm. it was not easy to be an African journalist and to witness what was happening to us because it was more than just one person being killed. It was the way they saw us. The way they looked at us as if we should be so thankful to be in their midst, you know. And if we came, we must be poverty-stricken, you know. We could not have had a full life before getting there, you know. There was this sort of pity in the way they looked at us. And it was just disheartening. I had that question in mind when yeah. I read that aspect of the no- of the novel, <laughs> the, of book, the book "Lives of Great Men." <laughs> of lives of great men. The when you're talking about, <laughs> I'm the literary award winner, <laughs> <laughs> published by Tim and Angelica and Weeder Books, Books and, and Jakana Media. Mm-hmm. Wherever you're in the world, you can yes, get one you can of get us. It. Mm-hmm. Um, when you were talking about your um, your time within the National Association of Black Journalists. Yes. Um, is it Richard Prince? Yes. And then yes. James Davis yes. and Arthur and Reginald Askew, yeah. yes. um, your experience. So much happened in that time. Yes. Know. Could you give, uh, you yeah. we talk, talk specifically about Amadou Diallo. Yeah. Could you talk about your experience? Because you've already mentioned, um, mm. you know, that you already had some, mm, some feelings about yeah. how, you as, as how Africans are represented in the media, but there yeah. you are, a Nigerian in America, as a journalist, starting your career. Yeah, there's many there. things that um, that I think about that time, and I think about sometimes. Someone, a professor, once said to me that um, because when sometimes people like to deride um, some of us who have lived abroad or who live abroad, you know, people talk about oh. This person is removed, is divorced. You and mean people on the continent? Yeah, and it's it's a way to sort of poo-poo <laughs> the efforts of some because they are away in their writings or whatever. Sorry and to interrupt you. Mm-hmm. So just to understand correctly, mm-hmm. there is a disconnect between those the journalists and thinkers on the continent of Africa and how they position. Um, I don't know if it's a disconnect. I think there are just a few mischievous people but sometimes these people have loud platforms okay. who um, are very quick to dismiss work by Africans who happen to live abroad okay. or have had a career abroad now there are some names I could throw out there but I won't because <laughs> you're living I'm your all, best I'm, life I'm, and you're not shady yes, I'm all about positivity <laughs> but I remember that there was a professor uh, at New York University named Awam Angba who once told me and I always remember this that it's okay for people to say what they want about X, Y, and Z but the measure of an African really is how that person behaves when they are away from the continent. How did that advice and that statement, how did it shape you and your yeah. approach towards your work? As well, a it allowed me to feel good about what I was doing. And 
you know, not necessarily having an agenda, but always looking to make sure that the African point of view is represented as best that I can in whatever powers that I had. You know, that the, the nuances of our storylines are injected in whatever I was doing. I started a magazine many years ago called The African. And part of that was to be a general interest magazine, but dealt with issues of Africans in the West who are not often seen because we're often lumped with everyone else as just, you know, black Americans or black mm -hmm. British or whatever it is. And my friends and my brothers, who I love and are very close to, but are 10, 11, 12 generations in America, sometimes have a different point of view than me and my brothers who are newer in America who've just gotten off a plane a few years ago mm. and they're having a career there. And that's what, for me, what the African magazine that I started in 2000 and 2001 was meant to be about. So we, we, we did, it was a print magazine. It doesn't exist anymore. But we did issues that highlighted things that we cared about as Africans living in the West you know, so when Wangari Matai, who planted a million trees, gets the Nobel Prize, that's a big deal for us. It might not be a big deal for, you know, Ebony or some of the others. It might be a story inside. But for us, that's something we want to trumpet on our cover. When a senator whose father is Kenyan becomes a U.S. senator, that was a huge deal for us. And we put that on the cover because this is a direct one-generation son of an African. Yes. And became a U.S. senator. That was a huge deal for us. Now, ultimately, that guy became the president of the United States. Yes, Barack ultimately, Obama. Ultimately, that person is American. But for us, there was a sense of, this is a son of an immigrant. One of us who came looking for education and left something behind in the form of a child who still, even though he was very American, still had this connection and went to see grandparents and had a relationship with sisters and brothers who and cousins who were Kenyans. So for us, those were big deals. And those kinds of stories were the things that I wanted to highlight with the African magazine, because it was not really a magazine about what was happening on the continent, but what was happening with first generation, maybe second generation children of Africa who were spread around the world and what they were doing and highlighting their achievements. Mm. So given your for want of a better word, agenda. <laughs> I know you say you don't want to be agenda-driven. Yeah. But you know what I'm, your focus. Yeah. Given yeah. your focus. It was a focus of mine, yeah. yes. Given your focus yeah. on the on amplifying the presence yeah. of, of our voices Africans, and our lives. Yeah, yeah. And lives and, mm. and um, redirecting the narrative mm. in America. And mm. also, you're, you're African, you're in America. You're mm. also the national black, Association of Black Journalists. Oh, yeah. So that that issue of blackness and Africanness, you know. So I'm going to ask you of a song that captures that. <laughs> you always laugh every time I say this song. <laughs> a song and album that captures your. I I I don't want to put words in my but just sort of that your state of mind, your the way you navigated the space as an African and a person in America who, to whom being black is something amorphous. Which song or al album captures that? 
and um, why? I will do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are several songs I think that. Um, so one song that I would talk about was. Um, it might even have been the biggest hit in many of us lifetimes, even though we don't think of it as a hit, we just think of it as a song that's just sort of like in our lives. Um, but I think that every place that I've gone to where there are Africans in America, particularly Nigerians, West Africans, but not just that, um, inevitably the song comes up. You know, it's about gratitude. Um, it's about knowing where you come from. And that song for me was uh, Sweet Mother by Prince Nekombaga. If I no sleep, my mother no go sleep. If I no job, my mother no go job. She no retire There are how many <laughs> versions or how many copies was actually sold, but mm. I know that anywhere we go, mm. someone will play that mm -hmm. song. And we might all tear up, but we'll all get up and dance because we appreciate the sacrifices of where we come from, the mothering, the parenthood. And that's one song. So for me, NABJ, National Association of Black Journalists, was almost like um, a journalism parent in a way. Because I worked in a newsroom where very few people looked like me. Whether they were African or not, just there were just very few black people. Maybe one or two. But worse than that was that there was probably very minuscule amount that were in a position of authority to mold me, to promote me, for me to even aspire that I could one day be an editor. You know, there was one person. You know, uh, and this lady was the one who said to me, <laughs> you need to go to NABJ. And I remember the first NABJ I went to, it was in Washington, D.C. And I walked into a gathering of 3,000 black men and women, very professional journalists, something I'd never seen before in America. And I was like, okay. How long this had you home. been a journalist? <laughs> How long had you been working as a journalist before you went before to the NABJ conference? Five or six years. Five or six years. Yeah. Just navigating um, white spaces. Did you know of the NABJ's existence before then? My, it might have tangentially, but I'd never been pushed to go because you needed money to go, mm. and I was always broke, <laughs> you know, and I didn't have the luxury or the information when I was a college student, that I could join as a university student at a much reduced rate. There's actually a student membership. They always have been. But that's one of the things of sort of like when you are, not that I was isolated in the university, but I was really, I was working a lot. I was by myself a lot. And I didn't have a community of African or black students that were readily available to me. Because someone could have said to me, you're in the journalism department, you need to join NABT as a student because 
they might give you a scholarship to go to the convention and blah, 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 blah. I didn't know any of this. Was there and a reason for that? Because I was working and I was busy. And generally, I was the only black person in my class. Maybe there was one other person, but it was I didn't have enough time to like form these bonds where we could be relaxing and somebody would tell me stuff. I just didn't have it. Um, and then by the time I was actually working, I started my career at the bottom, literally, in the newsroom. I was a person who made photocopies. Oh. Yeah. So after my degree and everything was done, while others are being hired as news assistants or desk assistants, I was essentially somebody to make photocopies and bring coffee. But I was in the newsroom. So earning so little, I could not even conceive of taking that money, the little that I made, mm. to join an organization, much less fly somewhere mm. to go to a meeting. But as I was working my way up, one time this editor just said to me, Frankie, you need to go to Washington. I'm like, Washington, what's happening there? He says, just take a few days off, go to NABJ. Did they sponsor your trip? I don't think they did that first year. They did afterwards. I think, you know, after I had gone and I recognized that once you're promoted, you can now ask for to be sent to the conference. You know, but this particular editor... She pushed me and, you know, she said, if you need a ride, I'll drive you there and da-da-da-da. So I ended up going. And it was like another one of those things that Americans call a light bulb moment. I was just like, wow, I can get mentors. I can meet people that don't have to be in my newsroom, but that I could call mm -hmm. and just talk about stuff. You know, they don't have, uh, we didn't have a name for it then. But we do now. We can talk about microaggressions in the mm -hmm, office. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with that? Um, how do you deal with overt um, racial bias? Mm. Um, and I made many friends at NABG, and then I began to take ownership of it. I started going all the time, and then I pushed um, not just to be part of it, but to help in programming and things like that. And then we did the first task force for LGBT issues. And that was great, and I was the co-founder of that. So NABJ was like um, an organizational parent, in a way. <laughs> um, and yeah, it was, a, it was a good experience for me. It still is. I'm still a member, even though I'm not uh, often at conventions, but I try to go every few years, and I encourage now that I'm in a position to teach. And when I have a black journalism student in front of me or a Latino journalism student in front of me or an Asian journalism student in front of me, I tell them, you must join the corresponding organization because doors will open for you. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. That you don't know about. I can only imagine how much richer and fuller my career would have been if, as a journalism student, somebody mentioned to me that there's a student membership you can join practically for free and get on their um, mailing list. You know, now it's listserv. Get on there and start getting information and start meeting people. I think also, even though the sometimes, even though some students know mm. that these bodies are Exist. accessible and yeah. available to them sometimes it's a confidence yeah there's that to know that. you need someone to push you yeah and to tell you that this is a safe place for you yeah no one's expecting you as a student journalist to be miraculous but they want to see you here yeah so um which book would you recommend to aspiring journal- journalists paired with a song or an album (laughs) 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 which book would I recommend because books are different for me I mean I I read books for a lot of pleasure but I also like writing styles and I I think that books that I would recommend to people are just books that I think are really really good but in terms of like a non-fiction work where the writing is superb and where the um the research is top notch and you will go away completely satisfied. I Don't say lives of great men. <laughs> <laughs> I actually wasn't going to say that. I'm teasing you. <laughs> Although Lives of Great Men is a good book. <laughs> but there is a small book. Um, it's, it's, it's just a couple hundred pages, I think. It's not a very big book. And it's called The Face, Cartography of the Void by Professor Chris Abani. I think it's an amazing book. This is a book that's about his face on the face of it. Mm. But it's really about Igbo land and Igbo culture and Igbo history at a particular time. And I think that one of the reasons I love that book so much is because the research is outstanding. I learned so many things, but also the presentation of it, the writing of it is just beautiful. You know, um, And it's a nonfiction book. You know, Chris has done a lot of poetry, he's done a lot of um, fiction and novels and all of that. This is a nonfiction book where, as small as it is, every line 
is filled with new information. Nothing is wasted. And it's a small book. You can read it and read it and read it again and still find that there are new things there. <laughs> and which song or album would you... <laughs> Well, it, wait, wait, it doesn't have to, it does, this song or album doesn't have to go with a book. Sure. It could be like a song or an album that is evocative of the advice you would give young journalists. Mm. Well, it would have to be, um, <laughs> I love how it it's it has to be Johnny by Yemi Alade. Oh my gosh. <laughs> When you listen to this song, you understand why we're laughing. He go Canada, he go Tokyo. Yesterday he say he de Morocco. He dance the sicko, he sing a willow. Na lie, na lie, na be no kio. This one na go be. Cynthia, why? Because <laughs> Johnny's a player. <laughs> but Johnny gets caught. Ooh. And Yemi finds a lot of information. She's digging. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this one, Carrie Belair. This one, Zay Gomari. This one, she's found all, she's got the dirt. She's done the investigation <laughs> before confronting him. And you have to do the research. Mm. You don't just go on suspicion, you know? <laughs> Yeah, you have to go and find the information and do your homework before you come and confront whoever your Lothario is. With your facts. Yes. Indisputable ah. facts. And not just the facts, she lines them up for him. <laughs> With the women. Oh, by the way, mm-hmm. listen, I mm-hmm. beg you, please. And then Johnny says, I don't know I'm all. <laughs> I wanted to slap him. Please watch the video, because there's a journalist as well in the video. Yes, there is. <laughs> there is. <laughs> And the journalist he opens, uses... He opens up the thing. He does. <laughs> and the language, I, when they cry, so they see you. So, yeah. It's one of my favorite songs of that year, the year it came out. I forget, is it 2017 or 2016? But I just... Uh, I laugh so hard <laughs> at the lyrics. I mean, there's a part where she talks about good luck, Jonathan, and his wife, Patience. <laughs> You know that Shanice is here with them, and you know, there's just this whole it captures a moment in Nigeria's history mm. where everything's just going haywire, and then you can't even like just date somebody because they're full of stories. <laughs> yeah, and I asked you for a book you would recommend to people, oh. no, to people who want to further explore the themes and topics of lives of great men, so that yeah. One of the things that was difficult um, very often when the book first came out and, you know, people would say, like, you know, what's been there before? And I would think of instances, and they were usually fiction. Um, 
you know, one of the things I'd always talk about, about you know, there's Walking with Shadows by Jude Debeers, fairly fairly recent, but it's a work of fiction. And then when the BBC um, had me on, they said, you know, that your book is the first um, memoir of this sort from the region, maybe Nigeria for sure, but definitely the region. And I was thinking that, yes, um, I didn't know that, but I knew that it was difficult to find nonfiction works because the time had become so dangerous for people if you have the nerve to step out and you say that you are anything but heterosexual, you could lose so much. Um, even if you were bi, you know. Um, so now, as a result of, you know, just the changing times, I was very happy to see that there are people who are working on their own stories from Nigeria, from Ghana, from everywhere. Certainly, Kasara Republic did put out She Called Me Woman. That is a nonfiction anthology. It has many identities hidden, but I'm hoping that we will see um, more books with people's names on them telling their own story. I know that there's a writer called Unoma Azua, and I know that she has a book that she's working on. She's a a queer woman in, um, I think she is teaching in the U.S., but she's from the Delta, and I think she has, she's been working on a memoir, so I'm excited to see that when it comes out. But I think that because Lives of Great Men has come out, has been out there, and the world didn't fall apart, mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, publishers and other people are now thinking, okay, well, maybe we can, um, we can uh, publish more stories like this. You know, whether anthology form or just full-length memoir. Full-length memoir is hard because you have to expose yourself. But I'm happy that people are s at least thinking about it. And also, which song or album would you pair with your book recommendation? <laughs> which book recommendation? <laughs> you just said she called me woman. Oh, and okay. I would do The Sweetest Taboo by Shadi. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> She's done a lot of work over the years, but I think that that's one song that stands the test of time, but also talks about, you know, this whole situation about loving in a situation where people think that that love is not correct. The thing that struck out to me whilst reading Lives of Great Men was yeah. given the subject matter yeah. and given the performance mm. of living because it's not performance of sexuality, yeah. it's performance of living yeah. and hiding mm. in plain it's sight. Yeah. It's very hard, but then you talk, yeah. it's very open, mm. honest. Like you said, I feel like, I feel like you're a friend whilst well, reading I'm trying to be, because I, I'm, I'm trying to talk to people where I'm from. Yeah, but to me, several aspects of the, of the book reads like, intimate discussion between my friends. <laughs> yes, you but know. then it's, it's a very public book. Mm. And, and what cemented this feeling of an intimate disclosure is that mm. people are named. Are these names pseudonyms or are they real people's names? And if they are yeah. their real names, do they, d uh, wait, do, 
did they consent to it? Were they aware mm. of it? And yeah. if they were aware of it, mm. what it, are the responses yeah. to seeing their names in print? Because it's one thing yeah. to imagine, it's another th thing to see in print. Yeah, so um, everybody in here, in Lives of Great Men, either said, yes, you can put my real name, or please use a pseudonym. And what I did was, for those who gave me permission, I used their names. For those who said, please tell my story, but disguise my identity so I don't lose my job or I don't come and get killed, I gave them pseudonyms. And all of them who were mentioned in the book have read the book, recognized themselves, and um, the most common thing that they have told me is sort of, thank you for telling the truth. You know, some of them said, oh, why do you know you're going to talk about this particular incident that was very intimate to you and I or whatever, but um, you were honest about it, and I appreciate that. You know, so the Lives of Great Men is not a book that makes me particularly look great <laughs> because I talk about my failures. Some of them are quite spectacular. Um, but what I wanted to do was to have an honest book and many people who have been named or disguised in the book, who have finished reading the book, they always tell me, um, thank you for shining a light on us because you were honest about it. And I think if you have not seen yourself in literature before, ever, if you have been treated as if you don't matter and nobody has dared to tell a story like yours, and you finally are reading and envisioning yourself, you know, if the story is true and it's not wrong, you feel a sense of like, I've been seen. And I think that that is the most important thing that I got from this. Not something I was trying to achieve. It just came by happenstance that people were who were in the book really felt like, okay, you did write by me. It's a very um, relatable telling. I was hoping so because I was... Well-lived you know, life. I'm trying to write for all of us. Mm. So I didn't want to be a book that would be relegated to the academy yeah. or to just a niche group of people. Mm. I wanted anybody to be able to pick it up <coughs> and see, you know, if not themselves, their brothers and sisters, their children, their parents. A song that captures the process of writing Lives of Great Men. Do you know one thing I love when reading? Yeah, I love coming across book titles. Oh, okay. <laughs> and so I, I was, yes, and mm. I was like, <gasps> the one is the poem. By Henry Wadsworth yes, Longfellow. Yes, A Song of Life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's where the title comes from. Yes. Um, and, you know, I there is a line in that particular poem that talks about leaving your footprints on the sands of time. And for me, a lot of these men and women that I was talking to, even when it doesn't seem like it, they were making a meaningful contribution to the way that they were perceived. And in fact, that was a line that I struggled with because I really wanted it to be the title of the book in some form or the other. But my publisher, as we were discussing titles, he was like, this is such a great point, but I don't think that will be it. How about Lives of Great Men? And I was like, yes, how about Lives of Great Men? And that became the title. But that poem, for me, had always been in the back of my head as I was writing through the years. <laughs> then the song? or album that captures your writing process of the book. <laughs> I'm not going to let you go with that one. <laughs> without 
<laughs> sounds weird. I feel like I'm holding you to ransom <laughs> for musical ransom. But there are so many. You have carte blanche. Say <laughs> how many. Uh, well, okay. We can start with um, Moving On Up. Oh, Moving Up. By it. M People. Uh, yeah, that's the one. Yeah. has walked in space, but you can't even find my place. There ain't nothing you can do. Cause I've had enough of me, baby, being part of you. Just who do you think you are? Why is that one? It's, it, it, for me, that one's about striving. And this was a book that I worked hard on. You know, that I had to keep going and keep going yeah. and keep going. Mm-hmm. Another one that also seemed to be about hard work but also about enjoyment was um, Shaka Khan, um, Yvonne Shaka Kaka's Nkongo. starts i work hard every day and you know you do all of that and you have a nice (laughs) cool beer so that was was um another one and then there's a song from actually it was before i was born but my parents played it a lot when i was growing up Uh, my parents had been american university students in the 1960s and so they listened to a lot of motown albums and when they returned to nigeria they brought those LPs with them and so they used to play them and oh I used to play them and one song was by Dino Ross um actually I think it was by the Supremes or maybe Dino Ross and the Supremes she was the lead vocal and it was called Love Child (laughs) you know this child that has no parents and was going to school in rags and just all of that and at the time I didn't know what a love child was you know but I was just singing the song but as I was writing the book I would think about those moments when I was young playing this song and I listened to the lyrics again and I was just like okay this is also about tough circumstance but also striving to be better so that is also um, in there <laughs> okay. Is there another song where you do? <laughs> yes, there are exactly, some contemporary songs. I love um, Jaye Jaye. Yeah. You cannot believe what I have seen with my eyes. Say, my people, it is a beautiful story. Na, na, na. See, I fought through defeat. Now I am living a better life. And I'm thankful for the life that I am living. Na, na. Song in between the song where Fela Son does like a a woman. <laughs> we keep going back to Lady, and I like that reinterpretation of that because that was uh, something special for me. But there's also another, I think it's Whiskey and some others who do this song called Maya Maya. So that's also a song that I was listening to as I was editing and and finishing up the book. Um, yeah. <laughs> there was a party I went to that I, you know, I mentioned this song in the book. It's called Booty Call by <laughs> D. Banch. <laughs> <laughs> it was a specific moment. I was at a party and 
<laughs> I had arrived at the venue and we were in the hotel sleeping, my partner and I, and we were sort of in this place where we didn't know anybody, but then we woke up and we were hearing, I love that booty, I love that booty, I love that booty. It's, it's a, a booty call. call. And we were like, okay, we're in the, we're right, in the right place. place. <laughs> Let's throw the music down and, f and find the rest of the guests. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned your parents that yeah. they were educated in the United States, and one yeah, thing both of that them went to university in the United States, which I think sort of shaped their worldview. Mm. They they never really um, <coughs> they both had careers um, in Nigeria, mm. but they both had education in the U.S. Another thing that struck me was mm. how accepting there was yeah. a wait wait. There it's was a, a process. Bit, <laughs> yes. Well, you know, there was a bit in, when, when I say how accepting, there was a bit where um, you mentioned your sister-in-law. Yes. Who, um, She's actually a cousin-in-law. A cousin-in-law. I know, we just say sister in yes, Africa. As in everyone's yeah. She's my cousin's wife. Yeah. <laughs> where you mentioned a cousin-in-law mm. who had... She was a homophobe. Yes. Yeah. Um, She's yeah. terrible. She's mean. And I, the contrast between, mm -hmm. there's a particular part, the mm -hmm. contracts, contrast between her treatment yeah. of your sexuality yeah. and that of your father. Yeah. And where you could be physically affectionate towards your father. Yeah. We, I, I mean, my father had a journey, I think. Um, and uh, it was not always easy, mm. but my father was a very well-educated man. So one of the things that he recognized that he didn't know, uh, he had not fully explored, was um, the spectrum of human sexuality. You know, So while in the beginning it was, his position was very much um, what was around him, which is like, no, and mm -hmm. you need to repent and all of that. Um, we had a, a very serious conversation about it and um, he understood what was on the line. It was like, am I going to lose my son mm. or am I going to learn more about this? What and he that? chose to learn more. It sounds like a loaded statement. Am I going to lose my son? Yes, because I had, um, I had, I, I don't know how old I was, but at a certain point I'd been out for a while and um, we had uh, a New Year's um, I don't want to say party, but we there's this year where a lot of us spend the new year together. We were actually in Abuja, and um, we do what we always do when we're together as a family, which is we wait up until midnight, and then when it gets to be a few minutes before midnight, we all pray so that we, we go into the new year in prayer. And it's something that my family does. Um, I suspect that you know we do it individually now that we're all grown but certainly when we were younger and we're together or if we're ever together at the same time is what we do you know a few minutes before midnight we fall on our knees we pray and we thank god for crossing us over and we then after we've prayed we start to reach out to family members that are far away you know and do the happy new year thing and this particular year um, during that crossover period that we were praying, uh, my father had said some prayers about, uh, you know, people who were gay who needed to come back to God or whatever. And then we had a conversation right after that, privately, which I suspect my brothers and my sister having their ear to the door. Just <laughs> 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 like, what is Frankie going to do now? Because... <laughs> <laughs> 
he's slow to anger, but when it comes, it is like a volcanic eruption. And I think they were expecting this. And I just, uh, daddy come into the room and I close the door. And you talk to daddy. And we had a, we had a very good, substantive, serious conversation, not about religion or about morality, but about just me and human sexuality and the options that there were. And the option was, we continue loving each other, or we don't spend any time with each other, period. It's not a good option to have, but at that point, I was I was not going to retreat into the closet. Remember, I had had all this work done on me. I had been through my return to love phase. I had been through my therapy phase. I had been in a place where I felt that any sort of not really compromise, but any dimming of my light was detrimental to me. And I wasn't going to do that at home, much less outside. And my father um, listened and I think really got it for the first time, really got what I was saying to him. And from that moment on, he started to devour information about this. I mean, I sent him things to read, but on his own, he found other things. And so he not only um, um, deepened his knowledge about human sexuality, but just sort of like, but he began to not just embrace me, but like my full life, which is what I want for every parent and child. You know, Nigerians are not people who generally like will go and discuss their relationship things with their parents. But they want you to bring, you know, if you're ready to get married, they, yeah, they will look at your fiance and whatever, but they don't just da 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 da. Um, and daddy was no different, but I think that his relationship with me was after that moment where he started learning about these things and he realized that I was who I'm supposed to be, where I'm supposed to be. By the time that he met my partner, it was just open arms. Mm. You know, it's just treated him like any other uh, son or daughter in law. Spouse, any other yeah. partner. Yeah. In the house. And w- luckily for me, they forged their own relationship oh. absent of me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but when my sister, my cousin in law, was um, mean and nasty to me, and. Uh, the following summer, um, she and uh, her husband approached my father to come say hello to him, and I was next to my dad. It was just a very sweet moment because my dad was just very tactile at that moment. I don't even know if I'd told him. I mean, I told others about how awful she was, but I don't remember if I'd actually told him. And as he spotted them come in, and he was very happy to see his nephew and the wife, but he was m- making sure that... I didn't leave his side. He just pulled me close and just Aww. held me close, almost to say to her I got that to you. this one is mine. <laughs> so that was very sweet. And mm. you're going to laugh at this question. <laughs> the song <laughs> or album <laughs> that captures people's responses to lives of great men. Davido, fire. <laughs> <laughs> is it fire, fire, bond? Fire, fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you go there for me. You go there. For the boy, the hunger. Yeah. I go die for you. Yeah. But you say if you don't get money, I hit your face. I 
like my face Make another man picking on my race I love you, no mean say If you say, make a put one up for fire Fire, fire, fire I go put one for fire It's a very um, visual <laughs> I think that People who have read the book, whether they are men or women, they are much older or they are younger, whether they are well-educated or what I mean by well-educated is whether they have a lot of degrees or whether they they have a few, um, they they come back to that, your book is hot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, from beginning to end, there are things that made them smile, made them blush, but ultimately they 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 have enjoyed the experience, and they hopefully have learned a few things. And for many people, they have seen um, people in a way they haven't seen before, and they have sometimes seen themselves, and they have felt seen. But for the most part, it's like ah, this is hot too. <laughs> so yes, fire, fire. <laughs> And if you had to summarize the whole book in one song. If I were to summarize the whole book in one song, I don't know what, how I would do this because there are so many um, would be the second album from Whitney Houston. It has all the great ballads in it. Um, you know, um, I could also say it could be, you know, because there's a lot of, there's a, I could also say it could be, you know, she had a greatest hits album. And there's disc one and disc two, and disc one is the one that had the the ballads from the first two um, albums. So we're talking about songs like "The Greatest Love of All," "All at Once." Um, there's a song that she did early on with Jermaine Jackson. If you say my eyes are beautiful, it's because they're looking at you. You know, so there's a feeling of like if you really love lives of great men. It's because you're seeing something that is reflective of you in there. Um, and then there's some other work that she did that I think encompasses the love that I try to talk about with Lives of Great Men. And one of them would be um, a song called All the Man That I Need. <laughs> I used to cry myself to sleep at night But that was all before he came Love had to hurt to turn out right, but now he's here. It's not You can just look at it and ah, oh, this person is the one that's shaking my head, and that's wonderful. <laughs> or you can look at the lyrics deeply, and it's really about the person who's the object of my affection, and that person is so complete the way they are. They don't need to change their behavior. They're fine, just as they are. And as they are, is all that I need. Do you know yeah. the wonderful thing, which is amazing how your your song choices ties in so wonderfully with the theme, with just the the structure of Lives of Great Men, yeah. is that Whitney Houston's first album is titled Whitney Houston. Yes. And the second album is titled Whitney. Whitney, yes. <laughs> so she has dropped this, you know, the, the surname and the second one is when she's just, I'm me. I'm just I'm me. who I am. Yeah. And it's so wonderful that that is the album that yeah. you choose where she's just, yeah. you've I gone mean, through all I of this journey. That, that first decade of her as a solo artist, um, there were a lot of things in her music that spoke to people 
outside of her vocal prowess. I mean, I think when people think of Whitney Houston, they always think about how great she was as interpreting songs, you know. But some of the songs that were her biggest hits were songs that had been sung by other people. Yes, like I Will Always Love You, Dolly yeah, Parton. That was a Dolly Parton song from you many know? years ago. And her interpretation of it made people think differently. The Greatest Love of All was by George Benson. Her interpretation of it made people think differently. you know. And I think there were several songs that she was able to get people to feel them. Mm. Right? And so when people often think about her, they think of her talent in terms of her powerful vocals but I often think of what she made me feel by paying attention to the lyrics she was not a songwriter but she elevated the work of songwriters to make us think and not just feel the melody but think about how do you behave what do you want to do um, Saving All My Love For You is one of my favorite songs of all time practically because it spoke to me in a in a in a in a very visceral way because I could see myself with Lamido and with other people that I mentioned in the book in my life who I tried to give everything and I was willing to wait until they finished with their wives. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. Yeah. To come and give me um, the crumbs and I would be saving my best selves for them. And these were things that she interpreted that more than just shaking your ass or swaying to the beat you made you really really think as to um where are you going with this shit <laughs> you know um yeah so her her oeuvre primarily in the first decade um is quite meaningful to me because i related to a lot of um the lyrics to the things that she sung and a lot of it were quite powerful and uplifting but there's a certain recognition of, you know, if you're in this space, you need to pick yourself up and get out. <coughs> yeah. So instead of saying maybe just Whitney or the Whitney Houston album, I would say maybe um, the greatest hits, but volume one, because it encompasses all of those years. And she puts the songs in there that are just um, uh, on remakes that just just like that there was one of her songs that was used in the olymp you know some of her interpretation of of um strong lyrics made you feel like you know you could you could you could do better you could have your moment you could shine without the whole world um recognizing it and so i i loved a lot of her work and i think i was quite lucky in that i was living in america at a time when she performed a lot and she was at her best. Now we all know that towards the end of her career there were health issues and health challenges. But I think that I, um, up until the part where, and in the immediate aftermath of the Bodyguard soundtrack, she was a consistent live performer. And you could see the depth of her interpretation of lyrics, of songs that she had recorded but also songs that other people had recorded. And it was a real joy for me to be able to see her four or five times in concert um, before the decline began. Yes, of course. <laughs> I feel like listeners, yeah. I've just had a wonderful <laughs> journey through the... Through music. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's been wonderful being here. Uh, now, one last thing that I want to ask everybody to do is um, to just encourage people in your lives to read 
I think that um, for us as Africans or people who love Africa, it's very important that we stop reading for passing exams only or for our own religious journey. We need to invest in writers who are contemporary, who are telling our own stories. Um, because there's a lot of... Um, I have the, had the luxury of living in America, and America is powerful because of its ability to put out different narratives out there. So you don't know only one thing about America, you know a lot about America. And this is what I wish for us Nigerians and Africans in general, that we invest in people who are trying to tell our own stories. So yes, I want people to read Lives of Great Men, but I also want them to read every other thing out there that's coming out. Books save my life, and books will save our lives. Too. So yeah. thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. A link to the songs featured in this episode is available in the show notes. Get in touch by emailing booksandrhymes at gmail.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Follow Books and Rhymes on Instagram and Twitter. Don't forget to share your thoughts on this episode by using the hashtag Books and Rhymes. Subscribe to the mailing list at booksandrhymes.com. Have a most, most, most excellent and fantastic week. Until next time, take care.